0: The Holy Gospel is written in the 22nd chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, beginning at the 15th verse. Glory be Be to to thee, thee, O Lord. Lord. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, We know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us therefore what thinkest thou. Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar, or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny, and he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled, and left him, and went their way. Thanks be to the Lord for the Holy Gospel, Amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. The governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, in his recent address to the Lord Mayor at Mansion House, next door to us here in St. Stephen's, and just opposite the old lady of Threadneedle Street, where the governor's office is located, said, Almost 350 years ago, the Great Fire destroyed the city of London and rendered 100,000 people homeless. It took half a century to rebuild, but the legacy of the Great Fire endures, including Wren masterpieces such as Our Church, St Paul's, as well as the 25 other steeples that survive within the square mile. The fire's legacy is not limited, stated the governor in his talk, to how the city looks. It extends to what the city does today. And our reading from Matthew deals with the vexed subject of taxes as controversial in the city of London in the 21st century as they were in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus's ministry. Benjamin Franklin is said to have written in a 1789 letter that our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain apart from two things, death and taxes. I personally prefer the supposed ultimate form of this saying by Margaret Mitchell of Gone With The Wind fame. Death, taxes and childbirth. There is never a convenient time for any of them. But death and taxes are still both inevitable in our modern society. But at least the experience of death does not repeat itself every year. Death, as such, is not particularly class-conscious, but the present refugee and migrant crisis highlights the many struggling at zero subsistence level who are more likely to be preoccupied with staying alive, rather than worrying about the hereafter. We worry about money. Necessary to our existence and, having obtained it, we resent paying excessive taxes of any description. Those who live at the margin financially, struggling with a low-paid job or no job at all, may particularly hope to pay very little tax and are hardest hit in doing so. We could say that taxes are the scourge of most of us during our lives. It always seems that the middle classes are hardest hit by taxes and that those with real wealth often seem to be the ones who have best managed to avoid paying their fair share of tax. But if you are that person that has everything sewn up in life, perhaps you might focus on how to secure yourself a place in the world to come. The Christian hope of a life after death. So let's look afresh at the New Testament. Nobody really knows for sure just how long Jesus' ministry, teaching and travelling throughout the Holy Land lasted. Some say three years, others say as little as one. A very brief inception in the history of Christianity. That Christianity grew into the world religion we know today is testimony to the power of the message Jesus preached. But it is also due to a much simpler, and often overlooked fact, he had more than a little help from his friends. Jesus chose his closest followers very carefully. He needed people he could trust to send out his message and to continue the work when he was no longer around to lead the nascent Christian movement. They were Jesus's most familiar allies and companions, but what do we really know about the lives and personalities of the twelve disciples. We know that Jesus recruited from the community he grew up in, an environment with a simple but mixed economy where jobs were specialised and survival was all-important. At least four of the disciples, James, brothers Peter and Andrew and John, were fishermen whose livelihood consisted of taking their boats out onto Lake Galilee to catch fish, such as sardine and carp. It could be a hard existence at times. They may have had to take out loans to pay for equipment and had to hand over much of their catch in taxes to the Roman authorities, who held considerable political and economic power over the entire region. The paying of taxes may well have been a source of tension between the fishermen and the local individuals the Romans employed, to perform the unenviable but highly lucrative job of collecting the taxes. By choosing one such tax collector, Matthew, as part of his close following, Jesus may have brought together a volatile combination of forces. Matthew's fellow disciples would have had to wrestle with difficult emotions when dealing with someone they would have been accustomed to treating with suspicion. Other factors worked to upset the group dynamics of Jesus' team. The brothers James and John, also known as the Sons of Thunder, according to the biblical account, were said to have had short, even violent tempers. They also coveted the idea of being Jesus' deputies, and this provoked disquiet amongst the other disciples. But somehow the Jesus movement managed to pull together in the same direction. They went off in small groups to preach and to perform, on a smaller scale, many of the miraculous things Jesus did. They healed people of physical and psychological illness, building on the reputation of their remarkable leader and gaining the acceptance and belief of converts. But in a region controlled by Roman authorities, they suffered great hardships and dangers. The Romans had a nasty habit of brutally stamping out political rebellions and messianic movements the disciples left the comfort of their family homes to be on the road, often sleeping rough and relying on local hospitality for food and shelter. It was no doubt a very challenging existence. There must have been arguments, jealousies and infighting along the way, but the disciples somehow held together in the power of their charismatic and determined leader. They may not have always understood what Jesus' message was, and their faith may well have wavered at times, but all of them, apart from the tragic case of Judas, stuck with the task. In our Gospel reading, we find Jesus entering Jerusalem, and in his last week before the cross, he is teaching and reading to large numbers, and taxes were a particularly sensitive subject in Judea in Christ's day. By way of setting a trap, he was tested, Jesus was tested very specifically about the issue by the Pharisees. The Pharisees being, to my mind, largely conservative religious who did not take the scriptures seriously, and the Sadducees who did not believe in angels or the resurrection. We can think about them what we like. And also, of course, the Herodians. These groups were enemies to one another but all joined together with one common intent. Jesus was a problem. He had neatly fended off the vexed question of taxation, but Jesus had to go. After Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples were left somewhat rudderless and disorientated, but his appearance to them and the intensely motivating events of Pentecost served to rally their spirits. From this point on, they found the strength to push forward with keeping Jesus' message alive, carrying Christianity through the Near East and beyond, as we know from Bible reading. What started out as a modest group of everyday fishermen, local officials and artisans, went on to become the driving force of a movement which flowered into a world religion and how important it is today for our own religious leaders to set a practical example of what a life in Christ looks like. It cannot be a question of doing what I say, whether it is with your taxes or not, but one of doing what I do. In the words of the remarkable Reverend John Stott, the Christian life is not just our own private affair, much as our taxes and salaries are, born into God's family, not only as he become our father, but every other Christian believer in the world has become our brother or sister in Christ.